welcome to episode 99 of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and for this episode, I'm joined by two truly incredible women who both have a passion for justice and equality. Allison McKinney-Tim is a human rights lawyer, scholar, and faith leader with over two decades of experience defending the dignity and rights of those on the margins. She's the founder and executive director of Justice Revival, whose mission it is to inspire, educate, and mobilize Christian communities to respond faithfully to the call to justice by defending the human rights of all. Joining her in this episode is a former Her Story Speaks podcast guest, Megan Chance. Megan is the host of her own podcast, Faith and Feminism, and she's a newly published author who's passionate about empowering women. In this episode, we talk about all things ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, and why it's a crucial step toward greater gender justice in the U.S. and ending gender discrimination in this country. Did you know that women in this country continue to experience discrimination and disadvantages in nearly every sphere of their life? A 2018 survey named the United States among the 10 most dangerous countries in the world for women, and the World Economic Forum recently ranked the United States 53rd out of 153 nations for gender parity. I admit, before this conversation, I had no idea that women in this country are still not protected equally under the law like men. While the vast majority of Americans support the ERA, and most believe we've already adopted it, it still has not been ratified. So in this episode, we talk about why this is the case and what you can help do to ratify the ERA as the 28th Amendment. Listen in on this important conversation. Okay, let's officially get started. Uh, Megan and Allison, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thanks for having us. And this is a bonus episode. Megan, you've been on the podcast before to share your story, but today we're welcoming Allison to the table and we're going to talk about the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, which is an important important topic and one that a lot of us probably don't know as much about as we should. Before we dive into that, Megan, can you've, you've done a whole episode, but just give us a nutshell introduction of who you are, where you're at today in the world, all of that. Yeah. So my name is Megan Chance. Um, I had the pleasure of being on this podcast before and um, Andrea, you already know, I love what you do. Um, I also love the social me- media series you've been doing lately. Like what if Christians did this instead of this? And I'm like, wow, <laughs> so powerful. Um, and I love your interview. So I'm grateful to be here again. Oh, thanks, Megan. Uh, of course. I am a former missionary turned podcaster author um, after I I realized my complicity in a lot of harmful systems. And so ever since then, I have been unlearning harmful things like white supremacy, homophobia, patriarchy. And I'm really passionate about making the church a more just and equal place. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I'm very passionate about fighting for women's rights, particularly because as many of your listeners know, uh, the church has historically held women back. And so I want the church to be a place of liberation for women. Um, But that's briefly who I am. I'm partnering with Ali. I'm a volunteer with her organization called Justice Revival. So the bulk of this podcast will be her talking. She's the legal expert. She's the lawyer, but I will share um, what I do know. But uh, I'm really happy to be here again. I'm thrilled to see you here too at the table, Megan. I think that we have similar parts of our stories of being involved with those systems and upholding those systems. And so now we really can speak about it because we were, we were part of it. Um, So like you said, with my Instagram post and yours too, Mm -hmm. like we know both sides. So it's, it's not that we're saying we have been immune or haven't participated Mm -hmm. in it. So um, I just appreciate your upfrontness and honesty with all of that too. So yeah. So Allison, is it Allie or Allison? I heard you, Megan, say Allie. So now I want to make sure to call you the right thing. <laughs> yeah, please feel free to call me Allie. Um, many folks do. And that's okay. that's actually what I'm more used to. Is it? Okay. Okay. So Allie, can you just give us, we're going to dive a little bit more into your story, but can you just give us in a, in a nutshell who you are, where you are, all of those things, just a brief intro? Sure. Yes. So I'm a human rights lawyer and a faith leader. I'm the founder and executive director of Justice Revival. We are a national, um, diverse, inclusive, ecumenical Christian organization focused on advancing human rights here in the United States. And the way, um, the, the really 
quick version of the way I came to um, join up with some great friends to found Justice Revival about five years ago uh, is that I actually got my start in human rights working in East Africa on a program to assist widows and orphans who'd been unlawfully and often violently forced out of their homes and deprived of everything they should have owned and inherited. And it was an experience that both showed me the incredible human cost of gender-based discrimination. And it was also the first place I encountered um, what we would now understand as white Christian nationalism functioning both to um, both to kind of embrace the, the at least um, the biblical uh, call to help the widow. So I met some leaders on the religious right who were happy to think about helping widows in Africa. Um, there's a, a lot of consensus. We can all agree that is something that can be good or important, depending on how we go about it. But these very same folks were very vocally opposed to basic women's rights measures, such as the Equal Rights Amendment. And that just struck me as an incredible quandary, a deep inconsistency. I thought there is some disconnect because what I'm seeing on the ground as a human rights defender is that rights save lives. And so it really literally broke my heart that in the name of Jesus, we've seen organizations in this country block the U.S. from joining core human rights treaties or adopting some of the most basic reforms to protect um, the rights of the most vulnerable. And I think the ERA is among those. Yeah, and we, st we see it playing out today. And we'll dive into that a little bit with the ERA and that history and why today there's the roadblocks with it. So before we do that, I'm just so curious, Ali, like how did this become your passion? And I know you can't probably sum that up in a few minutes, but you know, I don't think you just land in being a human rights advocate. Like what in your story do you think put you there? Or when was your first, I don't know, exposure or questioning? Like, I know you mentioned your time in Africa, but what else, there's something else that had to propel you even to be in Africa with that. Mm. So start where you want with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I always grew up with a consciousness that there was a struggle for women to um, live with dignity mm -hmm. in the world and to just be given the same chance to use our gifts and talents, the same chance to be um, respected as an individual. And I heard a lot of that in my mom's story. Um, she had faced uh, a lot of discrimination in her college years and early professional years, things like graduating with straight A's and being turned away from job opportunities, being hired and explicitly paid less than the more junior male employees she trained and being told it was because she was a woman um, and being um, denied the ability to even have her own checking account once she got married. This was in the early 70s. Um, I was also born in 1975, which was same. the very first year. Oh, same for you. Same, same. Yeah. <laughs> that was the year of the woman. That was the first year that there was a United Nations International Women's Day celebrated. I did not know that. And wow. we just had that holiday um, mm -hmm, recently mm -hmm. on March 8th. And so, I don't know, I sort of think maybe there was something in the stars, if you will, for me mm -hmm. around women's rights. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just you bring those things up. It's been so just ingrained almost in our DNA and family history and stories of just that oppression that women have dealt with. And that's just the way it is. And the three of us are white privileged women sitting here. So what we have experienced is in, in, a, in a very wealthy by worldly standards environments that we live in. So what we have experienced has been nothing compared to so many, the black women in this country and other countries. I think it's easy to sit here. And even when I started this conversation, I said, you know, I don't know a ton about the, the RA because I haven't had to, because I'm a white privileged woman. That, and like, I think that things are fine. And I think that's a big myth that we can think like, well, women are fine. We have all the rights, but in reading more about this, and, and I'm going to let you talk after this alley, but 
Just to set kind of the stage for the listeners, a 2008 survey named the United States among the 10 most dangerous countries in the world for women. The World Economic Forum recently ranked the United States 53rd out of 153 nations for gender parity, which is what? Like, I thought that those were like typos or something. So hence that brings us back to the ERA and the ERA that hasn't passed for years. So I don't know, where do you want to start with that, Ellie? Do you want to talk about the history of it and why we're still, I mean, we'll get into, I think, why we're still fighting, but maybe the history of like what the ERA, ERA Equal Rights Act was originally put out for. Sure. Yes. I mean, because as you've said, Andrea, there are absolutely, <clears throat> excuse me, um, numerous ways in which women face discrimination and injustice in the U.S. today. And it absolutely, as you points out, um, across every form of gender-based injustice, the burden falls hardest on women at the intersections of discrimination, black and brown women, other women of color, immigrant and queer women. And yet a lot of these abuses we're talking about do affect people across lines of race and class. So uh, domestic violence, which one in three women in this country will encounter, or um, attempted or actual sexual violence, which one in five women will encounter, those are so widespread that they're really um, problems of the society at large. Um, thinking about the history of the ERA, um, it's really a long running effort in that women first attempted right after the Civil War to be included in the post-war reconstruction amendments that guaranteed citizenship and voting rights for formerly enslaved African-American men. Uh, women were um, definitely denied that opportunity to be included when they, when they litigated and tried to get courts to recognize their right to vote. Um, they obviously lost and that, that right to vote was not won until the early 20th century. Um, and then it was primarily white women who were able to exercise it until the Voting Rights Act of 1964. Um, so there's a very long history. And then you get to 1923, that's when um, the first um, version of the Equal Rights Amendment uh, was proposed. And then by the 1940s, you had both major political parties, including the ERA in their platforms. Mm. And that sort of brings us to the early 70s. 1972 was when Congress passed the current version of the ERA. That was almost 50 years ago. So March 22nd will be the 50 year anniversary of Congress passing that. Um, an amendment through this route has to pass with a supermajority in Congress, which it did, a very large bipartisan supermajority. And it looked destined uh, for success because within the first year, 30 states ratified the ERA. Uh, it needs to have 38 or three fourths of states. And so there was um, very strong progress right out of the gate until the opposition mobilized. Um, and actually, Megan, maybe you want to step in here and, because I know you've thought and read a lot about this and, and talk a little bit about that opposition force. Yes. I mean, opposition came from several different directions. Um, one, perhaps unsurprisingly, was religious conservatives. I mean, I think we often see that opposition today and also from corporate interests. So specifically insurance companies um, who didn't want women to have equal rights or to be seen as equal citizens because that means that they'd be responsible for paying for more healthcare for women that might be unique to women. And so to go back to the religious opposition, so I, I want to make it clear, I think there's a lot of framing of uh, it, it purely being religious opposition that held the ERA back, but there are leaders like Gloria Steinem, Ali Schmiel, who have been fighting for the ERA for a while and also want to know um, how important the corporate interests were and mm -hmm. um, their resistance to that. But I will talk about the religious backlash because this is something that was, I think, a lot more upfront, a lot more what people were seeing. And so um, there was a woman by the name of Phyllis Schlafly. Have you heard that name before, Andrea? I actually have, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, you probably have. I think her name is gaining more prominence. And mm-hmm. um, it's in the book. I, in fact, there's a chapter um, in Kristen Kobes de May's books, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, that talks about Phyllis Schlafly. You're right. I've read that book and you're exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Keep going. Yes. Yeah. So some of your listeners might be familiar. Um, mm-hmm. but Phyllis Schlafly was a woman who campaigned against the Equal Rights Amendment by kind of feeding some really false narratives of what would happen if the ERA were to pass. Um, She, you know, harped on the fears that women, specifically housewives, would lose their protection as housewives as other people got rights. And so her primary argument or the way that she got to um, mobilize her base was that these women who, uh, you know, were comfortable or safe. And usually let's talk about white women here. I just white- wrote that down. I'm like, white <laughs> yeah. women fears again. We're targeting yeah, exactly. them. Exactly. Like- right. Mm-hmm. So specifically white women who had a, com- you know, found themselves comfortable as housewives and, 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 um, the privilege that went along with that thought or the way that Silas spoke to them is that they would no longer have those protections as housewives. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of really campaigned that idea that women's place is in the home, um, which is something that we've heard from yes, the religious yes. right for a while. And so she had this whole campaign um, where she like baked pies for um, political figures, told them that they didn't know ERA, that they didn't want the ERA. And probably due to that, and also these, like I said, these corporate interests, we actually saw the state. So initially when the ERA began to pass in the first year, so in order to become an amendment, which I'm going to give a little bit of a history lesson here, you need um, the majority of Congress to pass it, which Allison already shared happened in 1972 by a large majority, two thirds majority, by a large majority in both houses. And it was bipartisan. And in the first year, we see 30 states ratify. So it kind of seems inevitable that this is going to pass 30 of the 38 states required. Um, But then we start to see a slowdown. We actually see some states want to rescind um, their approval or their, (laughs) Mm -hmm. their voting for the ERA. And so this is really sad um, to see. And like I said, it has a lot, I mean, and I think even today we'll see it's both a combination of corporate interests and the religious right. Mm -hmm. When I think of different issues, like perhaps the um, National Rifle Association and what's happening there, I think we can kind of see that marriage between the religious right and corporate interests there as well. And also, Um, and and just, it's just really striking me as women, again, holding up the patriarchy. Yes, like we see. I mean, it seems mind blowing, but we see it today in the church and in mm-hmm. LGBTQ it's because it's like this fear that, oh, no, it's going to, you know, upset the American family and the man of the head of the house. It's all yeah. of that. It's just, right. We see it repeating. So yeah, thank you Absolutely. for bringing out this, this point of it all. So keep going, Megan. Yeah. Um, and then also what I really want to point out is the hypocrisy specifically of Phyllis Schlafly. Mm-hmm. She says, you know, women, women's places in the home, women belong in the home. This is where, this is our rightful place. At the same time, this is a woman who um, was trying to build a political career. She was not in the home. She was going around campaigning. She was, you know, well, she, she was well-spoken, well-researched. She was a campaigner. Um, She tried to run for office on a campaign of um, you know, militant nationalism. So this Christian nationalism that we see. And so even then we even see hypocrisy. She says a woman's place in the home, yet the, her whole <laughs> movement was getting women outside of the home to be politically active, to hold back the rights of all women here in the United States. And I, I really want to make it clear that the United States is one of a small handful of countries that does not have the specific protection for women in its constitution. And we'll get into why that matters deeply because I think a lot of people think, oh, well, we have laws and we do, we do have laws, but without constitutional backing, a lot of those laws are flimsy, they're easily overturned and they're really hard hard fought to begin with. Right, Um, and and look who's on the Supreme Court majority right now. So that's when these things really come into into play. Can I read real quick, Megan? I know. 
I think it's really important if people don't know to hear what the actual amendment is because they might be thinking, oh, well, it must be a really far out there. Do you want me to read it or do you want to read You can it? read it. I've memorized it, but you could also okay, read it. Okay, so Go for it. equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So it's a very simplistic equality law. Yes. It's not like housewives can't, I mean, it's just absurd where people are taking it in the fears. Yeah. That's right. And it's, um, it's among the most basic human rights reforms. The language of the Equal Rights Amendment uh, is very similar to the language in the 15th Amendment, protecting rights um, uh, from being denied or abridged based on previous condition of servitude. Um, Megan's already mentioned that uh, the vast majority of constitutions have some provision of this nature. Every constitution adopted since World War II does. Uh, and the U.S. has made numerous binding commitments through essentially every human rights treaty we've ever joined to um, protect principles of equality and non-discrimination, which are really just at the heart of human rights. I think they're also at the heart of a healthy uh, democracy in which all citizens count equally. And so sometimes I, I talk about this principle is as kind of part of the ABCs of human rights, the principle of equality. So just as you said, Andrea, this is, this is no radical leap forward. Mm -hmm. This is just really the least the United mm -hmm. States can do mm -hmm. for over half of its citizenry. Mm -hmm. Megan, did you want to, so I, you were in the middle of saying like, okay, all these, all these states going back to the story of it, the history, her story of it, mm -hmm. um, all these states. And then some states started taking back because of, of the fear. So mm -hmm. tell us, keep going with the story of where the history and where we're at. Yeah. yeah. I'll bring you up to kind of where we are modern day, but I'm going to then pass it to Ali because okay. it is complicated. And there's a lot, there's a lot. Yeah, here. <laughs> it is. Okay. So, so we see it pass in 1972, but we see this massive momentum in the first year, 30 states of the required 38 states pass um, this. And then we start to see some opposition It start to slow down. And by the deadline, and I want to make something clear, and Ali will definitely um, talk about this more in depth, but technically, according to Article 5 of our Constitution, amendments to be passed don't require deadlines. Actually, deadlines are not normal. And so this was actually written in the preamble, yes, of the thing. And so there was a deadline um, that was set and then was actually pushed back. And so by 1982 was when it was supposed to the deadline was supposed okay. to end and um, only 35 of the 38 states had ratified, which meant we were so like so close, mm -hmm. but not there. And so we kind of see this, I mean, it was a major blow to women and we kind of see, uh, I guess a lot, like when I was born, I was born in 1988, I had no idea about the Equal Rights Amendment. It kind of just like faded into the background, um, but it was not until uh, Senator um, from Nevada, Pat Spearman, correct, Ali, um, who mobilized this massive campaign in Nevada to get um, Nevada to be the 36th state to ratify. And so that starts a movement of more states beginning to ratify, even though we're past the the arbitrary <laughs> deadline. And so the Nevada ratifies. And then in 2020, Virginia became the last, the 38th state required okay. to ratify. And so I'm going to pass it on to Ali here, because this is where it's going to get technical and talk okay. about where we are currently with the Equal Rights Amendment. So as Megan described, there's been this incredible resurgence of advocacy and activism to finalize the ERA. And part of what prompted that was there was an amendment um, that was finalized some 200 years after it was first introduced by James Madison. And so that also sort of lit a fire, I think, under advocates to say, hey, if that's still timely, surely the ERA can be. Mm -hmm. um, there's there is, you know, a legal debate over whether that deadline was even appropriate in the first place. Um, and so that is a disputed issue that's being litigated. 
Um, however, all that Article 5 requires for an amendment to become valid is the two-thirds of Congress and the three-fourths of states. Those requirements have been met. And the ERA says that it will go into force two years after it's ratified. And that two-year time marker came on January 27th of this year. And so um, advocates, lawmakers celebrated the ERA as being effective now. We believe it is effective. It has met the requirements. There are ongoing efforts to clarify its status because of the objections that some raise over these two procedural issues, the deadline and the states who attempted to rescind or take back their ratification. Um, that issue is also being litigated, but essentially there's no precedent in US law that has allowed a state to do that, to change its mind about an amendment. And states tried actually with some of the post-Civil War reconstruction amendments and um, Congress didn't uh, recognize those actions. So efforts are going on now to, um, to clarify. There's the litigation. There is a movement to um, compel the government to publish the ERA as the 28th Amendment. That's another action that we're supporting. And then there's a bill in Congress that would remove or eradicate any deadline on so ratification. So can I, can I just clarify real quick, Ellie, because I'm trying to get in my mind the history. So January 28th or 27th, it was ratified, but it's still not published. And so the fight right now is because of the arbitrary deadline that it didn't meet. Is that why it hasn't been published as a as an amendment? There's actually a little more to the story. Okay, okay. And I know it is. <laughs> I'm trying to get it in my mind. So, okay. It's been involved. Okay. So typically once the 38th state ratifies, an official called the U.S. archivist then publishes the ERA. Okay. That's his job. Okay. Um, however, when Donald Trump was president, his Department of Justice issued a legal memo in anticipation of Virginia's ratification that discouraged and effectively dissuaded the archivist from publishing. And so that's something that's that's problematic, that's still outstanding, and he has declined to publish it. So part of our advocacy is also with the executive branch. It's with the DOJ. It's with the archivist himself. It's saying that was a, an inappropriate, problematic legal memo under the Trump administration. Withdraw that. And the archivist, you have the power to go ahead and publish the amendment. So there. It, it is, it's a, it's kind of a three front battle. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the action on the executive side. There's a federal lawsuit. Um, it's now called, I believe, Illinois versus Ferriero. And those are some of the states who most recently ratified who are suing this archivist. David Ferriero is his name. Um, and so that's the lawsuit. And then thirdly, there is um, this bill, uh, Senate Joint Resolution 1, that would eliminate the deadline. And so it's there's something happening in all three branches of government. And this is for a very simplistic equal rights amendment. Seemingly, Christians should all be behind. But there's, Absolutely. yeah, but there's still an incredible amount of opposition. Could one of you hit on maybe some of those myths or rejecting some of that opposition? You know, I'd be glad to, but before I do that, I uh, want to make sure your listeners hear why we do support it. Okay. That's great. Yeah. It may seem obvious, but I think it's also important to say first, we believe Christian people should join us in supporting the ERA simply because it is the right thing to do. If we believe in an idea of justice for the widow, literally justice for the women, and if we believe that we all have God-given human rights that reflect our innate human worth as people made in the divine image, then denying those rights is like denying who we are as creatures of God. It's, I think it's actually really heretical. Um, and so what does it say about our nation if we haven't even enshrined the basic idea of equal rights under the law um, for women in this country? 
So that's number one, that the ERA reflects our values as Christians who care about justice. That's our, our first reason for supporting it. And the second reason is that we have a lot of really serious problems of gender-based injustice that the ERA is needed in order to address. I've already talked a bit about violence against women. There are issues of pregnancy and pay discrimination. Through COVID, we've seen just how hard it can be for working parents. Um, and especially mothers have faced such setbacks in this economy and working mothers face um, a pretty serious penalty for each child, their wages drop about 7% in comparison with male counterparts. Um, so those economic disadvantages are a massive situation that our current legal framework has not rectified. There are also other issues like incredibly shamefully high maternal mortality as a gender-based violation and, and race-based because it's far worse for women of color. Glad you brought that up because we just did that series for Black History Month. That was the discussion about the high mortality rates for Black women and their infants. And it's like, what do you do with that? But you tying this in like this, this can help that issue too. I mean, there's so many things tied into this. So absolutely. And so what the ERA does is first, it very clearly gives Congress the power to pass laws to address all of these issues. Congress needs some constitutional foundation for every law it passes. And so for all of these issues, it empowers Congress to do more. Second, it provides a stronger standard to challenge gender discrimination in the courts. And we need that in order to address some bad decisions that have been the unfortunate result when women have, have tried to seek justice. And then the third thing the ERA does is it's going to prompt the states to review their laws and regulations and to reform anything that's still clearly discriminatory that states have on the books. So a lot of potential for impact that is going to help not only women, but also their families. And, and also, frankly, men as well, because when we think about um, a more fair system that allows people to do paid work and to do family caregiving and to combine those things together. That's something that, again, throughout COVID especially, I've heard from men just as well as women in my life, um, Americans really need some better supports around childcare, around paid parental leave. Um, and the ERA is an impetus for all of that. And, and it's, you know, honestly, um, it's also a no brainer. It seems like a no brainer when you're talking. And that's why it's like, I can't get my mind around the opposition. It's there. So do you want to delve into that right now? Or Megan, did you want to follow up what she, she was saying? I mean, I said that follow up just briefly. I'm yeah. just going to mention briefly three cases that I think Absolutely. really exemplify what Ali is talking about. So as we know, here in the United States, there is pay inequity. Um, which actually is 82 cents to the dollar for white women to white men, but that number actually increases. So if we're talking about intersectionality here, that pay discrepancy increases uh, for women of color with Hispanic women or Latino women making, I, I believe, 54 cents to the dollar that white men make. And so when we're talking about pay inequity, this is an issue that's been around for a long time. What, why aren't we making progress? Well, there's a case, um, and I'm briefly going to say what, it, yeah. what happened, but Betty Dukes um, was a woman who worked for Walmart, um, a Black woman who worked for Walmart, was really good at her job, quickly promoted to the lower levels of management, and then hit a wall, wasn't getting a pay increase, wasn't getting promoted, and started to notice that this was a theme with a lot of her other coworkers that were women. And so her and a group of other women um, representing, they, in the case, they claim to represent, um, I think it was 1.5 million women who worked for Walmart at that time that they were getting paid less. And so what's, it's, it seemed like a slam dunk case. They could prove that women were getting paid less. They could prove that they were getting promoted less just based on statistics. They had expert testimony. Um, and so it looked like, of course, you can see that women are being paid less here. They're being promoted less. However, when it went to the Supreme Court, um, they said um, that they had to prove that the 
pay discrepancy was an intentional by Walmart. Um, so in other words, they had to prove that Walmart had a policy saying here at Walmart, we pay women less, um, which of course you're not gonna find. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't able to bring that civil case. And so we believe that if there was an equal rights amendment with that constitutional backing, that case would have ended a lot differently. Mm -hmm. There's another case um, that is near and dear to Ali and I just because of the violence and what happened, but there was a woman named Jessica Linehan had an extremely violent, unstable husband, got a restraining order against him, um, and her husband abducted the daughters, their three daughters. Um, and she called the police all night long, tried to get the police to do something to, um, I, remember she had a restraining order and on this restraining order, it said that the police should um, you know, protect her and her children and they refused to interfere. And unfortunately throughout the night, though she continued calling the next um, early in the wee hours of the morning, her husband showed up at the police department, um, started shooting at the police department, died due to gunfire, and they found the three girls in the back of his vehicle dead due to gunshot wounds to the head. And that story, I remember Ali the first time I met her speaking about it, and it seemed really familiar to me. And that's when I realized that that story had actually happened in my hometown and my neighborhood that my mother had sat me down and let me know that my friends might be dead. Um, that she didn't know if they were my friends. They, they rode my school bus. They lived down the street from us. Um, I was not close with them, but I think that exemplifies how close domestic violence is to all of us. Cause mm -hmm. this, this, this kind of story happens all the time. So this case again, goes to the Supreme court and the Supreme court says that the Castle Rock police department where I lived, uh, was not, did, did not have a duty to do oh anything. Gosh. And so that's another thing we feel like the equal rights amendment would protect women like Jessica and a lot of other domestic, um, violence survivors or who've lost their children, or it, it, it's really horrible, yeah. um, that that happened. And then if we're talking about pregnancy discrimination, there's another case of Peggy Young who, got pregnant and she worked for the United Postal Service. And um, due, due to doctor recommendation, wasn't supposed to be lifting above 20 pounds. Um, so you think that she would be assigned light duty um, due for the disabilities, um, they, would, they would assigned um, a light duty option, but they didn't do it for her because she was pregnant. And basically said, come back when you're not pregnant. And so she was out of pay for 10 months while she had um, her child. And that also, um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but it, I, there, it went, to, went to the Supreme Court. When I read this case, there's a book called The um, Equal Means Equal by Jessica Newworth. Okay. I hadn't quite gone to the Supreme Court at that point. It now has, there's a little bit of legalese, but basically in that case, again, there wasn't really protection for her as a pregnant woman. And so these are three cases. There's plenty more. There's a really great book, like I just mentioned, called Equal Means Equal that talks about these cases. But we're trying to fight for women's justice and we're hitting roadblocks. We can't make progress because there isn't that constitutional backing. And so if we're talking about the Violence Against Women Act, we know that a large portion of that was struck down due to a lack of constitutional backing. And so I know I, Ali, again, is the expert. This is like the layman's version. Of me no, thinking. but I think this is so yeah. good because it helps. It's helping me be like, oh, my God, it's so important. Not having this, this simple foundation is making all this injustice against women occur. And it really, to me, if I'm hearing you right, so much of the opposition, I think, stands on these bigger powers that don't want to answer, that don't want to lose money for paying women equally, that don't want to have to give this time off, that don't want to answer. I mean, it's just, I appreciate so much this perspective that you're giving, Megan. So thank you. Yeah. And so I'm going to pass it back to Ali. She's, she'll talk to you about opposition and I'm sure she might have more to add about those cases that I spoke of. Um, but Ali, take it away. Well, where should we pick up Andrea? What, what would you I mean, like? To I think I asked about the opposition because when I'm reading it, when I'm hearing you guys talk, I'm like, well, this is a no brainer. Of course we want this to pass. Of course, every woman should want this to pass every man, every Christian. 
but that's not the case. So I think it's really helpful for us to know why one. So if we meet that objection with a family or friend member, we can really know the full story because I think these objections really are kind of myths about it. Um, so I don't yeah, know if you want to hit, right. hit on the big ones, I guess that people are most likely to be like, no, because of this. Great. Yeah, absolutely. I think myths is exactly the right word. Mm -hmm. There is so much myth and bad information out there. So one, one thing that I hear often from ERA opponents is we don't need it. We don't need the ERA. Um, Back in the day, Phyllis Schlafly would point to herself and say, you know, if, if people reminded her of, of kind of how accomplished she was as she talked about women's place being in the home, she would say, yeah, see, I don't need it. And so for one, that's um, kind of a, um, a very narrow response when people say that out of their own experience and they aren't cognizant of what other women might be facing um, in the country. But it also ignores all of these realities that we've been talking about, about what women face, what we saw come to light during the Me Too movement, the extent of sexual assault and harassment in every quarter from the media to the military to college campuses to political halls of power. Um, It ignores the, the economic and lived reality of women struggle just to be safe and to protect their bodily integrity. Um, When people say we don't need it, I think sometimes they're wanting to point to the current protections that have been won under the current text of the constitution, but those are partial and they are vulnerable to reversal. Mm -hmm. And so there is a body of law under the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment And these are the wins that Ruth Bader Ginsburg championed starting in the early 70s when things started to change through these case-by-case struggles to recognize some measure of legal equality for women under the Constitution. But women have never been given the same level of constitutional protection Mm -hmm. against discrimination that you see um, securing against discrimination based on race or religion, for example. So it's always been a somewhat half-baked equality, which is not to take away from the victories that have been won because, hey, we'll take them. And yet um, full equality is what women are due. The other problem with the current Um, status of relying on the 14th Amendment is that constitutional originalists, justices like Scalia, uh, he said explicitly, I don't think the 14th Amendment protects women. It was never intended to. No one ever thought that's what it meant. That's specifically what he said. And today, for the first time, a majority of the court are originalists. So what what women have now is in that regard vulnerable as well. My other response to this argument, well, women already have equality, is okay, if we agree that that's a good thing then, what's the problem with saying it outright? What's the problem with saying it outright? And, And so that's the other kind of important response to that argument. Um, And it's such a privileged statement, like it just, Oh, it irritates me that that's, I mean, I know it is you too, but such a privileged notion to say that, well, we don't even need it. It's like, maybe you don't right now because of your white upper middle-class status, but you're not looking and listening to the stories and the voices of those that have needed it. And you don't know what's going to be in the future for your daughters or grand. I mean, it's just, it's such a narrow-minded privileged statement. Um, Indeed. I think that's absolutely right. A lot of opponents want to point to the procedural arguments and talk about the timeline or the states that rescinded, but I don't think that's what this is about at all. There hasn't been a struggle since the mid-19th century for women to be equal citizens. It's not because of the timeline. That's not really what's at issue here. Um, I think the other two opposition arguments that have the most traction now, they um, they are both holdovers from Schlafly's era. One is fear that LGBT people will also have rights. And so that sort of um, 
wanting to pit women against LGBT uh, communities. That's part of what's at play in the opposition. Human rights are by definition universal. Mm -hmm. God's love, I believe is universal. We want everyone to be respected in their dignity, to have access to things like education, jobs, um, the right to go into uh, any business, the right to um, get the housing they need. And so our, our sincere hope is that the ERA is interpreted to extend equality to LGBTQ mm-hmm. individuals as well. And there's some precedent to indicate that that uh, would be the case because um, this uh, Supreme Court, in an opinion, um, I believe Neil Gorsuch wrote the Bostock opinion, it interpreted the, the Civil Rights Act or a portion of the Civil Rights Act to extend um, protection based on sex to issues of sexuality. Um, so in, in that regard, I don't disagree with what opponents are saying. Yes, this will protect gay rights. We just think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Right. Yeah. And then of course, if we're talking, um, opposition, um, I think the leading argument that opponents want to, um, want to, underscore or um, voice about the ERA is a claim that it would directly support or reinforce a right to abortion. However, we see the ERA as a basic fundamental measure of justice, a core democratic principle. We see that it has had broad support from pro-life as well as pro-choice lawmakers on both sides of the aisle in these three states that most recently uh, ratified it. And we see the ERA as very well positioned to address some really serious life and death justice issues that would in turn, um, they would relate to abortion by Uh, addressing some of the root causes for the prevalence of abortion in the United States. So for instance, we know that when we talk about intimate partner violence, this is a lethal abuse. Four women are murdered each day by their partners in this country. And that risk of lethal violence is much higher during and around pregnancy. So we've got to address the violence against women and the ERA is necessary to do that. Megan talked about pregnancy discrimination in the workplace. There was another case that that is also heartbreaking of a pregnant worker who really miscarried on the job because she was pressured to keep lifting heavy cases onto shelves. And right now we don't have the protection we need against pregnancy discrimination. Another reason the ERA is necessary, another example of how it helps women and their children. Uh, We talked about um, maternal mortality. Part of the cause of that is mothers not having access to paid maternity leave. So if we're concerned about women, if we're concerned about their children, these are some of the problems we need to address. The ERA is a crucial tool to addressing them. And finally, the the big driver of um, felt need for abortion is economic. So three-fourths of abortions are sought by poor and low-income women. We've got to level up and achieve pay equity. If people want to see abortion decrease, that is one of the most humane and just ways to do that. That is just upholding women's rights by passing the ERA. If we do the right thing, then the good will result for the whole community. I believe that's just how justice works. And um, I'm hopeful that as more and more people hear this message, they'll see it's it's not a contest between women and babies. It's doing justice so that everyone can flourish. And what I'm hearing you say really is the ERA is one of the, if not the most pro-life amendments out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, not pro-life in the narrow sense that sometimes that word is used of, of um, but pro-life in the sense of just supporting the conditions. Yes. yes. Of life. I, yeah. I'm not meaning the narrow sense. I'm meaning the 
whole body pro-life. I think Megan and I are very <laughs> on the same page with that. Yes. I mean, the very actual, actual being for lives, for LGBTQ lives, for women's lives, for babies. I'm not talking about the just pro-birth. Yeah. It, and I, I assumed that I just wanted to <laughs> clarify. I, I appreciate Yes. I appreciate that. Megan, did you want to add to, to what she just said? I know we're, we're getting on the end of the hour to wrap up, but I definitely yeah. want want to give you the floor if there's anything you want to add to that. I mean, I just echo everything Ali said. She did such a great job. We're actually in the process of writing an op-ed on why we believe that the ERA would be the most humane way to reduce abortions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really excited <laughs> Pray for us to get it placed. Um, it's a great article. It's a great op-ed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm really tired of this narrative of pitting women against their children or their potential children. It makes sense that when a mother or a woman flourishes, of course, her children would flourish. And that's common sense. If we want the child to be taken care of, we should make sure that the mother is taken care of. And so to me, this is just common sense. It's, it's humane. It's just, and where I want to end off and what motivates me so much to do the work that I do when it comes to volunteering for justice revival. And even, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm in an internship right now. And so um, I won't be partnering with justice for revival in that capacity forever, but I will always be um, an advocate for the many things that justice revival is doing besides the ERA, which we could go into later, but also the equal rights amendment. Um, I think it is our duty, my duty as a white Christian woman to repent of the history of what white Christian women have done, uh, like the campaigning of Phyllis Schlafly and those like her, I feel like it is my Christian duty, an act of repentance to make sure that it gets passed today. If, if white religious conservative women were a large part of holding back equal rights for all women in the United States, then I must be part of the movement of Christian women to make sure that that wrong is rectified um, and repent by making sure that it's passed. And so my Christian conviction, I know you and I, Andrea, are very, very familiar with being attacked for being justice oriented mm-hmm. um, as Christians or as faith um, people of faith. Um, but I really think this is a core gospel message mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to, to, to care for women. And I think it's something Jesus would have done. Um, I, I know, I don't think, I know we can mm-hmm. see in scripture that is what Jesus did. Um, and so for me, this is deeply motivated by my faith. And I, I just want to be part of the movement, repenting, saying we messed up, we're going to do better. Yeah, go ahead, Ellie. No, 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 go ahead. Well, I was going to tack on, you know, it's important to remember too, patriarchy is a system. We are all a part of it. I mean, everyone, everyone in this country, if not this world participates in the system. And so, yes, there are particular ways that it's, this has been manifest within parts of the Christian story. And it's also broader than that. Um, And it's also, you know, this is an opportunity really for men who enjoy Mm -hmm. privilege because of the ideas of male superiority and female inferiority that have been embedded there, um, both in um, religion and in our legal culture. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity for them too, to say, I want to let go of that unearned privilege. And I want to support my sisters in achieving equality. So this is also an invitation to the men. Mm -hmm. Sometimes men, I think are unsure if they're welcome um, in the women's rights conversation, but it's important for those who, who are in power also to care about this cause and um, to come to the table as well. Mm, Yeah. That's a powerful point, Ali. Thank you for that. Wrapping up, I guess two full question. There's some important dates coming up. And then you say, you know, it's it's our obligation, our job as Christians to get this through. But what can we do? I think that's what listeners are probably like, okay, yeah, I support it. What do, what do I do then? So let us let us know some action steps and important time dates coming up. Okay. Great. So we have a number of steps that anyone can take. 
One, you can call or write your senator to support um, SJ Res 1, the bill to eliminate the deadline on ERA ratification. If you want an easy place to do that, go to justicerevival.org slash ERA, and you'll find an easy link to write your senator there. Um, really important, try to do that before uh, March 22nd, if you okay. can. That's the big 50th anniversary. There may be some activity on that date. And so there's a lot of momentum building leading up to that. Okay. Um, second, if you are a faith leader or you know a faith leader, check out our interfaith statement of support for the ERA, also at the same URL. Over 560 faith leaders across the country have already signed on. Let's make it thousands. Please yeah. share it far and wide, share on social media. Third, if you lead a faith organization that would like to join the Faith for ERA campaign, right now we're a dozen organizations, um, would love to see that number grow too. You can reach us at info at justicerevival.org. Um, it's easy to join, getting engaged with some simple digital advocacy. We'd love to have you. And then when you're on the Justice Revival site, if you sign up for updates or follow us on social, you'll also get kind of the rolling um, latest calls to action as things okay. develop. Okay. And I think I'll just add to that. I think talk about this in your spheres of influence on social media, in your families, in your church groups. I mean, I think as women and men, but there's a lot to be said by bringing these things up and talking about them and the awareness. Um, did you want to add to that, Megan? Yeah, I do. That's okay. No, I you love it. Me <laughs> <get> excited. <laughs> Tell me more. Megan. I think we <laughs> underestimate um, the power of having these conversations. I will. There was a poll done by the ERA coalition that shows that 80% of Americans think that we already have an equal rights amendment. Mm -hmm. People don't know that we don't have this. And I've found this, particularly in my generation as a millennial, that next to no one knows about this. So I think that's why this conversation matters so much. Um, and, uh, you can obviously share this podcast. There's, we've done a series of podcasts here mm -hmm. on the podcast circuit, but there's also really great resources on Justice Revival's website. I'm going to okay. particularly point out the policy brief, which yeah. is very well studied, um, legally researched, and actually digestible. I've I am not a lawyer and I will say that up front. A lot of the stuff when I've been joining meetings or reading different books or articles have gone over my head because it's saying a lot of legalese words. I will say, I love what Ali and her team did with it, that it is very digestible um, for someone who is not a lawyer, <laughs> which I have found is it can be hard navigating that world. I've gotten a lot better at understanding legalese, but I mean, think about the contracts that we sign. Like, we don't know what it says. Mm -hmm. Anyways, all of that to say, um, it's a very digestible way of why we need the ERA, very well researched, and you're going to open it and it's going to look really long. But the reason it looks so long is because it's very well sourced. I think you could read the whole thing in 20 minutes to half an hour. I think. Okay. I, I, I read okay. it quick, more quickly okay. than I thought I could. It's very digestible for yes. lay people like ourselves. Yes. Yes. And so I highly recommend that. There's also... Um, if you go to the Justice Revival website, like Ali said, so many different ways to get connected. Do any of you want to end on a final note? I just appreciate so much this conversation and your time and your passion and the passion that you're stirring up in myself and others to realize just the importance of this, the importance of this, especially as Christians. How can we not fully get behind this? Absolutely. But my final note would just be that the ERA is on the right side of history. And I think in hindsight, it will be so easy to see that. And our grandchildren will say, what was the problem? What took them so long? If you're on the fence at all, think about the struggle to abolish slavery. Think about the struggle to um, end um, outright racial segregation during the 50s and 60s. And how we look back and we say, why was that so difficult? Why did people use the Bible to try to justify that kind of discrimination of one group over another? And there's a just a very clear parallel with what's happening here. Desmond Tutu had a beautiful way of telling his opponents, you might have the power, but you've already lost. Why don't you come on over and join us on the winning side? 
We're going to end on that, Ellie. Thank you so, so much. Both of you, thank you. Thanks for hosting us and highlighting the issue and for everything that you're doing in your community through your podcast. Really important voice that you're bringing and amazing, beautiful kind of breakthroughs that you're sharing. Thanks for listening in on this conversation. I hope it has inspired you to take action by sharing this episode with a friend, talking about the topic with friends and family, and most importantly, contacting your senator. All of the links mentioned are in the show notes for this episode at HerStorySpeaks.com.